Okay, so I want to start this morning by reading. So let's look at Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and we'll stop right there for now. So in these verses, what we see, um, really, we see three huge in the first church, three huge problems in the first church. And I say again, no church is perfect. Um, And even as we idealize a lot of what we see of the first church in the book of Acts, really if if we dig deep enough, we see that this church is broken and has broken people Uh, just like our churches today. There is no perfect church because church is made up of broken people. Um, Three huge problems, three huge problems. The first one is rapid growth, rapid growth. Um, If you think back over the the five chapters that we've covered to this point uh, with me just on how the church has grown, it's absolutely incredible. We started the book of Acts with 11 apostles, and there were somewhere around 120 who gathered together in the upper room to pray. So that was where the church started before the Holy Spirit came. Within days of that, the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost, and on that day there were 3,000 apostles. So we go from somewhere around 120 to more than 3,000 being added. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, we read that the Lord was adding to that number daily. Daily, the church was growing. In Acts chapter 3, we talked about uh, the lame beggar who was healed at the temple and this huge crowd that had gathered. Um, Peter shared the gospel with them. And on that day, we read that 5,000 men just men, 5,000 men were added to the church. And so at this point, the church is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people. Last week, we saw Peter and John and the apostles arrested and then released, and the church continued to proclaim the gospel even after their release. And Luke said that there were multitudes of men and women who were being added to the church as never seen before. So we don't even know how many people are in the church at this time. And when we come to chapter 6, verse 1, Luke tells us that the number of disciples continues to increase. The church, the, the picture that we have at this point is the church exploding exploding in Jerusalem. Um, And and the growth of the church was was outpacing its structures, its organization, its leadership. Now, that's that's a good problem, right? That the church had exploded like that? It's a it's a great problem to have that kind of growth, but it's still a problem. 
It's still a problem for, for the church. When you, when you outpace your structures, when you outpace your, your leadership, right? how do you care for the people? How do you care for all of the people? I mean, more than 10,000, right, and growing daily. How do you care for those people? How do, you, how do you even know what the needs of the people are? If you know what their needs are, how do you organize in such a way that you can meet the needs of the people sufficiently? How do you even teach the people? All of these new believers coming into the church, how do you begin to teach them? So it is a good problem, but it is a problem, and it's a big problem. There are other problems as well besides just the rapid growth of the church. Let me read this again. Uh, in verse 1, now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So rapid growth was a problem, and here we see another problem, and that's neglect of the Hellenist widows. So let me, just so we understand what this problem was, I want to sort of explain a few things from these verses just so that we have the right cultural context here. First of all, when it came to widows in the church, if a widow had family, then then in their culture it was the family who took care of the widow. Um, She would rely on the reason that she needed help, no matter what her age was, is because there was just no means for her to care for herself. So in their culture, the family would care for the widows, but if they did not have family to care for them, then they had no way to care for themselves. They would be destitute. They would be in in utter poverty. There There was no government assistance. There was no social security. There was absolutely none of that. The only thing that they had was the family of believers. And so the church, their family, uh, outside of biological family, the church took care of them. Now there's a second thing that I want to point out. I'd always understood in the past that, that, that the widows were literally being served meals, and this is what it meant to wait tables or serve the tables. And in part, it did. They were being served meals. We know that, but, but, but there was more to it than that. They were also receiving financial assistance. And, and so the apostles were in charge of not only making sure that they were taken care of at the meals, but making sure that they were taken care of with all of the needs that they had a, as widows. And that included managing the financial resources of the church and making sure that these widows were taken care of as well. The third thing, and this is a really, really important cultural thing, um, Luke tells us that the complaint was brought up by the Hellenists who were accusing the Hebrew leaders of neglecting their widows. Now, let's make sure we understand this. When the Greeks took over another nation, right, in war, and they were expanding their boundaries, um, they would capture their enemies, and then they would disperse their enemies throughout their territory. Right? And they did this so that there was no way that their enemy could, could come together and come against them again. So they would disperse them throughout their territory and force their culture on them. 
So they wanted the people, their enemy, to adopt their language, to adopt their values, their ideals, their philosophies, to indoctrinate them completely in the Greek culture. So the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, became very divided over this because um, there was one group that was really loyal, hardcore Hebrew, and they refused to adopt any culture or language other than their own. But there were others who, maybe they started off hardcore, we're talking generations passing here, but, but it, at some point there was a group that had adopted uh, the Greek culture. They adapted to the culture that they were in. They adopted certain aspects of that culture, taking the language, and they were called Hellenists. They were still Jewish. They were, they were still Hebrew people by their bloodline. They were still Hebrew people in, in their religion, but they were different. They were different than the hardcore Hebrews. They, they likely dressed a little bit different. They probably sounded a little bit different. They even had their own version of the Old Testament Bible called the Septuagint. So for these hardcore Hebrews, the Hellenists were often seen as less than. This is important. They were looked down on. They were considered to be sellouts. They had sold out to adapt and to take in the culture of the Greeks. And the apostles, the apostles were Hebrews. They were not Hellenists. And so here, this accusation arises that they are discriminating particularly against the Hellenist widows in the family. Now, I want us to understand this. This is a gospel issue. What was at stake in this first church, in this accusation, is the gospel itself. Prejudice and discrimination is a gospel issue. Do I need to say that again? Because it's true for us. Prejudice and discrimination is a gospel issue. The story of, of, of the Bible is, is super, super clear on this. All humanity is created in the image of God. All humanity created in the image of God, equal in worth, equal in value, equal in dignity. All people, every tribe, color, tongue, and nation are wonderfully and beautifully created in the image of God. And also are all broken and marred by sin. All are broken and marred by sin. The Bible tells us very clearly all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the sin, the sin, that sin, it, it, it doesn't matter what color, it doesn't matter what our language is, it doesn't matter our nationality, our political persuasion, none of that matters. We are all sinners and our sin separates us from God. Every single one of us separated from God by our sin and the bad news gets worse, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to atone for our own sins. Nothing. We can never, the Bible, the, the, the picture the Bible gives us, we can never undo what we have done in sin. 
There is no way for us to tilt the scales in our favor for righteousness. And, and hear me on this, our color won't save us. Our dialect won't save us. Our family won't save us. Our wealth and our education won't save us. We are all equally needy, desperately broken. But here's the good news. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to save sinners, right? So, so, so we are all wonderfully, beautifully made. We are all broken and marred by sin, and the remedy for our sin is exactly the same no matter who we are or where we are from, and that remedy is Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we have all failed to live. He died the death that we deserve because of our sin. He paid my price just like he paid your price and the price of every other sinner who has been or will ever be. And on the third day, on the third day, our dead Savior, good news, the good news is that when we place our faith and our trust in the work of Jesus, rather than in all of those other things like our skin color, our self-righteousness, our being better than someone else, our doing enough or having enough on our own, when we trust that Jesus has done the work for us, through that faith, through that faith, the amazing life, death, and resurrection becomes ours. His life, perfect and pure, is granted to me as if I lived a perfect and pure life. His death, right, taking the very wrath of God that I deserve because of my sin, his death becomes my death. And the resurrection of Jesus, his resurrection, defeating death and sin and Satan, that becomes my new life. My life over death and sin and ultimately Satan. Hear me on this. The gospel is all about Jesus. The only thing in the gospel that is about me is that I stink. It is all about him. Here's the thing. You stink just as bad. It is not about me. It is not about my skin color. It's not about my riches. It's not about my history. It's not about my, my family. It's not about the language that I speak. It's not about whether I am a hardcore Hebrew or I am a Hellenist. The Bible is clear. We are all the same. Broken desperately needy, and the provision for every single one of us is the same, and that is Jesus. One more thing. In Him, when we come to Him through faith, in Him, the Bible is also clear on this, we are all the same children of God. And every one of us, there's not, there's not a section for rich children of God and poor children of God or black children of God and white children of God or brown children. We are, we are children of God. And when children share a father, what does that make us? That's right, sisters and brothers. That's us in Christ. So here's what that means, family. When we neglect and discriminate, 
what we are doing is denying the gospel. We are denying the work of God in and through Jesus. And that's what was threatening to blow up the very first church. So the church was struggling with, with, with rapid growth. The church was in danger because of the neglect of the Hellenist widows. And here's the third thing. The apostles couldn't do what they were called to do. The apostles couldn't do what they were called to do. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Because the apostles were having to, I'm, I'm giving quotes here, serve tables, they were having to do all of the work of meeting all of the physical needs of not only the widows, but others in the church, really the whole church, their physical needs and their spiritual needs as well. Because they were having to do all of the work, they really didn't have time to do the things that God had called them to do, to proclaim the Word of God, that is, teaching and preaching the gospel in light of the Old Testament as they had been, and they didn't have time for prayer. So, so what was happening really was nothing was being done well. They weren't caring well for the people in the church. We just saw that. But they also weren't doing well the preaching that should have been taking place, the discipleship that should have been taking place. Really, everything in the church was being left undone. Discipleship was left undone. Teaching was left undone. Preaching was left undone. The mission that God had given them was being left undone. Everything left undone. The apostles couldn't do everything on their own. And because they were taking on so much, again, the whole church was hurting. So what would they do? Look again with me, verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose seven. They brought that, that group of seven before the apostles, the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed and installed them as official leaders in the church. So what was the solution to the problems that the church was facing? The solution was adding godly leadership. Adding godly leadership. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So we need to add leadership, the apostles said. So they set out to do that. Three things really quickly that we should see. Um, one is there were leadership qualifications, right? There were leadership qualifications, and it wasn't a popularity contest, and it wasn't based on who had been in the church the longest. That's what happens a lot of time in churches, right? It's good, good reputation. This was the first qualification that Luke gives, good reputation. Leaders should have a good reputation. This should be reputation inside the church and reputation outside the church. 
This should be someone that, that, that people would see as honorable, someone that, that, that people in the church would listen to and would follow, someone that they would trust. They should be full of the Spirit. How do we know if someone is full of the Spirit? How do we know? One quick way is to look at the fruit of the Spirit. Look at their life and see if their life um, is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those qualities in the lives of the, the, the leaders or the potential leaders that we see? Right? This is the fruit of the Spirit, so are these the qualities of your life? This is a good place to start. A good place to start as far as being full of the Spirit. So they should be good reputation, should have a good reputation, be full of the Spirit, and, and thirdly, full and, and to the lives of others as well. Are they wise in their walk? Are they wise in their walk with the Lord? Are they wise in their walk with other people and in how they handle situations, how they deal with problems, how they relate to people and deal with people? Are they wise? I, I think these are just some basic ways of saying that what they were looking for were, were, were godly servants. Godly servants, men, men who more and more reflected Jesus in their own lives. Who, who more and more sought to follow the Holy Spirit and, and whose lives bore fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the sanctification, the shaping into the image of Jesus. So what about their, that's their qualifications, what about their leadership duties? There is more debate here than, um, than I realized. Uh, I, I always learned that these were deacons, right, just serving the tables. But m more likely than that, um, these were probably like little a apostles who served in a greater role than just deacons. Maybe they were closer to an elder. Um, what is important here is that there was a need for leadership and a need for organization to carry out the ministry and to take care of the people, and, and the church identified leaders and installed those leaders. W one more important point on this one, and I really love this, the makeup of the leaders, the makeup of the leaders, leadership makeup from those who were chosen, right? Second half of verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Here's what's really interesting here. One commentator pointed out all seven of these were Greek names. All seven were Greek names. Now, it was not uncommon in, in their culture to have two names, right? Your Hebrew name and your Greek name as well. But it is certainly not out of the question to see this as intentionally inclusive leadership in the first church. Intentionally inclusive leadership. Now, there's one further point that I think, to me, answers the question of whether that's what's happening or not. I think the point that supports this is that Nicholas, who was chosen, he wasn't even a Hebrew. He was a Gentile. 
He was a Gentile. He was a non-Hebrew to Judaism. They were intentionally adding diversity to their leadership. How do our churches reflect that today? If that is right, if that is right, and I think it is right, then what a beautiful thing that we see in the first church. This first church was intentional. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. All of the qualifications were there. They were the same qualifications. They, they didn't give someone a pass because they were a proselyte. They didn't give someone a pass because they were, they were Greek. They still had to meet all of the qualifications, but they were intentionally including a diversity of people in, in, in the family of God at every level. The, the problem was that the Hellenists were not feeling loved. They weren't feeling cared for and provided for. They were feeling like there was prejudice against them. How beautiful for this first church to open wide the door of leadership and say, whether it was true or not that they were, that they were doing this to the Hellenists, how beautiful for them to swing open the door and say, let's lead in this together. And that's a picture of the kingdom. And it, it doesn't just stop there with, with, with cultural differences. The kingdom includes all peoples, all colors, all education levels, all income levels, all of God's diverse children brought together in Christ. What, what, a, what a beautiful picture to say there is something greater than, than, than my biological blood here. There is something greater than the color of my skin here. To say there is something greater that unites me with the people around me than the neighborhood that I live in or the car that I drive or the school that I went to or the education level that I have attained. There is something greater and it is Jesus Christ. I'm going to get excited in a minute, y'all. What a picture of, of, of the gospel at work. Separated people being reconciled by Jesus. I, I want y'all to know the leadership of New City Church wants to see that. We... we we want to be that kind of church. So let me wrap up. Let me wrap up. Three big problems threatening the church, and this was a major, major, major threat for the church. Rapid growth, neglect or worse of the Hellenist widows, and the apostles not being able to do what God had called them to do. So the solution, godly, spirit-filled leadership, men of good reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, men who could help shoulder the responsibility of making sure God's people were shepherded well and cared for well. A, a, a leadership team made up of a diversity of people, Hellenist and non-Hellenist, even a Gentile proselyte. 
So what happened when, when they did this? What happened afterward? The result, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God increased. The word of God increased. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. And even many of the priests who had stood against the church became believers. Man, these these godly leaders, these spirit-filled men were a gift to the local church and a gift of grace to the entire kingdom of God. Without that leadership, the first church was on a path to failure. In fact, they were already failing. They were already failing. We, we talk about um, at New City living in our identities, our gospel identities, right? The gospel, the good news of Jesus and our faith there isn't just that we, were, we are saved and one day we get to go to heaven. There's so much more. Like we are new creatures, completely changed. Part of that is, is our identity. Um, we, we talk about it in terms of family, missionary, and servants. They were failing on every one of those. They, 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 they weren't living as true family, the family of God, caring for one another equally, meeting the needs of one another equally, especially where, where there was already this divide and prejudice, right? So they weren't truly living in their family identity because of the gospel. Because the apostles were, were also beginning to bog down in, in so much of this um, work and the, the details of ministry, they were failing to lead as missionaries. Right? They were struggling to, to, to adequately preach the word. They were struggling because they were tending to so many things here. They were struggling to be there preaching the word, going into the temple and, and teaching from the Old Testament how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. They were struggling in the mission that God had given them. They were struggling to teach all of those new believers what it means to love and follow Jesus. They were failing as servants, right? Family, missionary, servants, they were failing as servants. They were unable to serve the people in the church sufficiently, uh, unable to serve outside of the church sufficiently, and they were unable to raise up new leaders to serve alongside of them. It was too much for the apostles and for the church As disciples who make disciples, they were stumbling and nearing failure. If the church was going to be the kingdom of God present and a growing kingdom, it had to have a growing, godly, spirit-led leadership team. And the beautiful thing is that from within that church, those leaders came forward. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly, and the world would be transformed forever. Now listen to me. If New City Church is going to be the kingdom of God present and a growing kingdom, we have to have a growing, godly, spirit-led leadership team in every ministry area and at every level here. Did y'all hear me? You must not have. 
We are growing New City, and that is a beautiful thing. We are, we are growing by the grace of God, and that is a, a beautiful thing. We need to do it together. We need to do this together. We, we, need, we need men and women who are willing to serve in kids. And listen to me, listen to me now, not to just say, oh, okay, I'll help out in kids. Yes, happiness and joy to say, I want to help lead kids to Jesus. I can do that. I can share a Bible story. I want to help lead kids to Jesus. I, I, I want to give parents an opportunity to grow in the gospel. I, I, I don't know, right? We need people who will say, because this is me, like, I don't know what I am doing. Start me as a helper. But I'll learn. I'll learn, and if you teach me, I'll become a lead teacher in one of the classes. I'll become one of the, one of the check-in team leaders. If this is a need that we have in the church, I am willing. Same thing for Connect Team, right? Like Connect Team, our Connect Team, you guys do incredible work, and it is a vital part of our ministry in welcoming others to New City Church. We need people who will say, put me in. Put me in. Put me in. Where do you need me? I am willing to serve. I, I am willing to learn. I, I, I'll be an assistant leader. Teach me, and one day I'll lead one of our Connect teams. We need this in missional communities. Missional community leaders, do we need this in missional communities? Now, we, 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 we desperately need this. We need to multiply our missional communities to make room for, for other people. Our missional communities, if you're visiting with us, are like house churches that meet during the week. And this is the primary place for our discipleship outside of Sunday morning and, and, and our care and shepherding of the body together. And, and, and they are amazing and beautiful, and they are filling up. They are filling up. And, and when there is rapid growth and our, our MCs are, are growing and outpacing our structures and our leadership, all of the things that we just talked about in the church in Jerusalem on a large scale happen on a small scale. And because our leaders are so busy doing all of the stuff, you know what happens? Failure. Failure. We need, we need, we need you we need you. Our MCs need people to step up and say, hey, I'll, I'll be in charge of our MCs' third place activities. Let me schedule it and remind people what I'm doing, what we're doing. I, I'll lead the planning for our missional partnership. Just let me take that off of your plate. Let me do that for you. It's four times a year. Let me take that from you. Hey, I'll take the lead on our meal planning, on what we eat together, and, and I'll send out the menu, and I'll organize that. Let me do that. I, I'll be a host home. We need people who will say, hey, I have a home that I can use. I will open that. Like the church in Acts was growing rapidly. We talked about this before. They didn't have a huge church building. Primarily, they met in homes. And as the homes filled up and there was no more room, someone came forward and said, hey, y'all can meet at my house. Amen. We need host homes. 
We need, we need people who will say, teach me how and I'll help lead. And maybe one day I, I can lead as well. I'm willing to go through MC leaders training. Music, musicians, tech, everywhere. Everywhere. To see the gospel transform our church, our city, and the world, we need godly, spirit-filled people willing to step up, grow with us, and help lead. Now, one more quick thing here. Where did those leaders come from? They came from within. They came from within the church. Now, I have a confession In our early days, I used to pray um, that God would send New City Church leaders. God, send us leaders. I am am doing too much. I can't do everything. We need leaders. We need leaders to help do this incredible mission that you've given us. We need leaders. God, send leaders. Eventually, when I was frustrated and at the end of me becoming angry and bitter with God, God said, Keith, I have given you the leaders that you need. Help them. Equip them. Encourage them. And watch what happens. So so here's what I'm saying to you. If you are willing, so are we. If you are willing, we as as leaders in the church are, are willing. Take a step. Serve lead, and let's see what God will do in middle Georgia. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this picture from the first church. So many beautiful things to see there. Thank you for the way that you care for your church by giving us servants, by giving us servant leaders. God, your grace is amazing. And, and your grace here at New City is absolutely amazing. We have incredible spirit-led people serving and leading. Father, I pray that today our hearts would be encouraged to take the next step as well. That for those who might not be serving, that they would step up and serve. For those who might be in MCs as as. as primarily takers, that they would say, put me in. Let me help. Father, I pray that our children's ministry would be overwhelmed with volunteers because people want to see our children come to love and follow Jesus. Because people want to see families welcomed and able to be here while their children are taught and cared for. Father, thank you for the people that you have given. We we trust you. Help us to lead them well. In Jesus' name.